I'd like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church. We're glad you've chosen to worship here with us this morning. If this is the first time that you've been here, we are in the last week of a seven-week series going through the book of James. And we've looked at quite a few challenges so far in the book of James. It's a very challenging, very in-your-face book. But before we get into what we've looked at so far and what we're going to look at today, I want to give a brief preview of what we're going to be looking at starting next week, now that we're done with the book of James. We're going to be in the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is one of those books that probably isn't read as often as it should be, because it's a really great story. The story of Nehemiah starts in 586 B.C. Jerusalem is ransacked by Babylon. All of the influential, intelligent, skillful Israelites are taken away from their home city, the city that God gave his people, and they're dragged off to Babylon. And one of Babylon's goals is to completely erase Israel off the map. Anything left of their identity, whether it's their art, their language, they even have the exiles change their names. They're striving to make it as if Israel never even existed. Fast forward about 140 years. Babylon's no longer in charge. Persia's now the power that has the say. And Nehemiah comes on the scene. Nehemiah goes to the king of Persia, and he says, You know, my city, Jerusalem, the city of my forefathers, the city of our ancestors, is in ruin. And it's shameful, and it's embarrassing, and it hurts us, and we mourn over that. We hate seeing the city that God gave us look so terrible. So Nehemiah asks the king for his permission to go and help rebuild the city of Jerusalem, to help Bring it back to its former glory. And the king says, okay. So Nehemiah goes back and he leads these rebuilding efforts along with a guy named Ezra. But we're going to be looking at the book of Nehemiah because we're going to examine what it is that Nehemiah did. The principles that he built the city of Jerusalem upon. The things that he thought Jerusalem needed to find its foundation in. And we're going to discover some things about what our foundation for our faith should be individually, as well as what the foundation of our church should be, too. Because we, too, are building something here at Prairie View. So that's what we're going to be doing next week. I hope that you will join us for that. It's going to be a great series, great book that maybe you might not know a lot about, because it is a book that is neglected. But we're still in James. And we've looked at quite a few challenges so far, and I'm going to list them off just a little bit one by one. Number one, we looked at the challenge that James gives to ask God for wisdom. He's speaking to this audience in a faraway place, and he's telling them, seek God's wisdom, because it's the only wisdom worth having. And the good news is that God will give you this wisdom if you ask him for it. Don't try to get by on your own wisdom. Don't try to get by on the wisdom of this world. Ask for God's wisdom. It's the only wisdom worth having. And then he says that you should persevere in your faith. Now, the people in this time and in this area knew quite a bit about challenges. They knew quite a bit about hardship. They were facing famine. They were facing persecution. They were facing poverty. And so James tells them to hold their head up high, to maintain their faith, to stand strong in the faith as other biblical writers would say. Another challenge James gives is to be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word, not just people who slap bumper stickers on the backs of our cars, not just slapping Jesus fishes in the back of our cars, but actually letting our faith infiltrate every area of life. 
letting it infiltrate our relationships, letting it infiltrate our work, our play, our decisions, our words. Don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. We looked at the sin of partiality, as James calls it. The people in that church or in that community were often tempted to show favoritism to some people in the church over other people in the church. Whether it was because of issues like economic standing, whether it was because of issues like skill set, and even today we may have issues of race. And the church is called to refuse to show favoritism of one person over another person because we are all created in God's image. Every single human being. And the church should be the one place where we get that. Another challenge he gives is to tame the tongue. When I talked about that sermon, taming the tongue, I discussed the example of how do you treat people like waitresses? How do you treat people like telemarketers? And I gave a somewhat negative illustration of my mom. Because she had called me and said, hey, I was kind of rude to this telemarketer. Well, I want to tell you that she was really, not really, but she was kind of upset with me when she heard that sermon online. And I'm not going to be sharing any of those illustrations today because she's here. Uh, so in the next time that she's not here, and maybe if they, don't, if they don't have internet access for a week or something, I will share every illustration I can think of. But until then, I'm not going to do that. But we talked about the idea of taming the tongue, making sure that we understand that our tongues can have an incredible amount of damage if we're not careful. In the church, whether it's because of slander or insult or gossip, James says our tongues are like a little tiny spark, and that spark can start an entire forest fire if we're not careful. He then moves on and says that we are called to be humble. He challenges his audience to humble themselves before God, and God will lift them up. He challenges them to draw near to God because God will draw near to them. He says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's a big challenge. And that humility is James's antidote to the issues of jealousy, the issues of selfishness that seem to permeate this community from time to time. And I think we're all weak to it at times as well. And then last week, we talked about the importance of prioritizing eternity, making sure that we don't look at life as if there's only this life to live, and so we better build up as much treasure as we can, we better have as much fun as we can, and forget about what comes next, because nothing does come next. It's a lie. We are called to look at our lives through the lens of eternity, not laying up for ourselves treasures in this life and neglecting the treasures that really matter, the treasures in heaven. Now, we hear these challenges and we think, man, that sounds like an awful lot of stuff that I'm supposed to be doing. And you're right, it does. How in the world are we ever going to do all this stuff on our own? Well, we're not going to do all this stuff on our own. We're called to constantly, going back to wisdom, be calling upon God for wisdom. Trusting in the implanted word that can mold us and shape us and transform us and make us more like Christ. Because if we try to do all these things on our own, if we try to be more like Christ simply by emulating him and reading the New Testament and saying, I'm just going to be more like that guy, then guess what? We'll fail. The change that we need is not just a change of outward actions or outward habits. It's a change of the heart. 
and a change of the mind that only God can make happen. So these challenges are hard. They're overwhelming, but we're not doing it alone. And that brings us to where we are today in James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. But before we get into that today, will you pray with me? Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've blessed us with. Thank you for the privilege that we have to come here and to worship you. God, we often take for granted just how blessed we are to be in community with other believers, to be able to wake up on Sunday morning and get in our cars and drive here and not have to worry about intense persecution the way many Christians across the world do. God, I pray that we won't take that for granted, that we'll make the most of the opportunity you've given us. I pray that we will look to the community. I pray that we won't just look at ourselves, we won't just be an inward-focused church, but rather we will look to spread your kingdom through Fishers, through Noblesville, through everywhere around us. God, thank you for your son, Jesus, that he died on the cross for all of us, that his body was broken, that his blood was shed. I pray that we won't take that for granted either, even though we hear it all the time. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the spirit that lives inside of us, that's working inside of us as well. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Like I said, we'll be in chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to use one of the Bibles on the chair in front of you, right underneath that chair. If you don't have a Bible at all, feel free to grab a Bible from the welcome desk before you leave. We have a few sitting out there. If you happen to go out there and there's no more Bibles out there, grab one of these. We want you to have a copy of God's Word before you go home today. We'll also have verses up on the screen if you'd like to do that. So, James chapter 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Today's passage is going to be all about prayer. That seems to be the main point of this last passage of James. And it's interesting because I think as Christians, we often have this somewhat love-hate relationship with prayer. If you're anything like me, as a follower of Christ, you've probably struggled with your prayer life. Sometimes you try to pray and your mind races. You try to pray and you get distracted. You try to pray and something interrupts you. You think that you found a good routine of prayer, and then something comes up in your schedule, and the whole thing's blown to pieces. It's a struggle. But I think our issues with prayer may even go a little bit deeper than that. First things first, I think if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we act as though prayer is the thing that we do when we don't have any other options. It's the last resort. You know, we always pray when things are out of our control. We always pray when we don't have anything that we can do about the situation. It's that last resort that we turn to only when we're helpless. But all the other situations, our first response, what can I do? How can I change things? How can I make this difficult decision on my own? And only then, when it's really hard, will I turn to God. Only when things are tragic will I turn to God. 
Only when I can't handle things on my own will I turn to God. Another thing that's interesting about our relationship with prayer is that often when we get busy, I think it's the first thing that tends to go from our schedule. We look at our lives today, and I don't want to discount the fact that we certainly are busy. You wake up, and you have to get yourself ready for work or for school, and then you might have to make sure your kids are ready for work or for school. You have to make sure that they get on the bus. You have to make sure that you get to work on time. And then you have to make sure that you get all your work done, which includes working through lunch, so you can't pray even during your lunch break. And then you finally get home. You have to make sure that the kids have their homework done. They brought everything home they were supposed to. You probably have to make the occasional trip back up to the school so the kid can get their backpack out of the locker because they left their homework in the backpack in the locker. Then you come home, and all of a sudden you have to make dinner. Well, you end up going and getting fast food because that's just how busy you are. And then you have to take kids to practice, whether it's play practice or football practice or piano practice, some sort of practice all the time. And then your kids get home, and then you have to make sure, now wait a minute, I still have to take the garbage out. I didn't check the mail today. I completely forgot to check the mail. I didn't cut the grass on Saturday, and so I'm going to have to fit it in right now before it gets too dark. So you have all these things that you're called to do, all these responsibilities, all these obligations, all these different directions that you're being pulled in. And you often look at your schedule and you say, you know, I'd love to pray. I really would. But I just don't have time for it. Look at my day. Look at my schedule. I can show you my calendar if you want me to, God. I just don't have time for it. Well, recently I had to read a book about Martin Luther for one of my seminary courses. And Martin Luther at one point said, you know, sometimes I just get so busy that I have to pray for three hours a day. That's just how busy I am. Look at the reversal of the attitude there. In our culture, we often look at our schedules and say, you know what, I'm so busy, I can't possibly have time to pray today. But then look at Martin Luther. Martin Luther says, you know, I am so busy today that I need to make sure that I pray maybe even more than usual. Talk about a different attitude. The point of verses 13, 14, 15, people suffering, people who are cheerful, people who are sick, James's point seems to be that prayer should be a constant, regular part of our lives at every point in life. Good times, bad times, hard times, easy times, when things are going well, when things aren't going well, when things are scary, when things are peaceful. Prayer is there through thick and thin, Monday through Sunday. It doesn't just happen here. It doesn't just happen in a small group. It doesn't even just happen in that one little two or three minute morning devotional. All the time, prayer is called to be a part of our lives. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Paul writes, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God and Christ Jesus for you. Now, wait a minute, Paul. Pray without ceasing? Is that really practical? Is that really realistic that I'm supposed to be praying literally all the time? Maybe Paul was just going on a bit of a rant here. Maybe he didn't really mean pray all the time. Well, look at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 16 through 20. In that passage, he writes, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, 
And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Supplication is another word for prayer. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul does not hesitate to tell people to pray all the time. And he doesn't just do it once. James seems to be doing the same thing here. Paul tells us that prayer should be an every day, every hour, every minute part of our lives. And he doesn't even hesitate to say, you know what? Don't just pray about anything. Pray for me because I really need your prayers. Paul doesn't hesitate from saying that. Whether you're suffering, pray. Whether you're cheerful, sing praise, pray. Especially if you're sick, pray. There's an interesting passage there in verse 14 that talks about anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. And some people hear that and they're like, that's kind of awkward. But it was a practice back then that was very, very common. Leaders of churches would gather together over someone who is sick, over someone who is suffering, and they would anoint that person with oil and pray for that person's healing. Now, the whole point of the oil, there may have been some belief that it had medicinal properties, but that doesn't seem to be the main idea here. The whole idea of anointing with oil was the idea that this oil was going to symbolically set this person apart for God's special attention and for God's special care. And that oil was just a reminder to God. Hey, God, don't forget, we'd really love for you to heal this person. We'd really love for you to help this person feel better. We'd really love for you to alleviate their suffering. Now, the whole point here is not so much the oil. The whole point is call the elders and have them pray over the sick person. We as elders at this church, we have before used anointing oil. It's not something we do all the time. It's a little preference that some churches do it, some churches don't. Some people think it's great, some people think it's weird. I kind of think it's weird, that's just me. But we can totally do it if someone would like to. The whole point is pray. Have the elders pray for you. And it's important for you to know that if you're sick, if you're dealing with some sort of struggle, If you're having a surgery or a procedure, we want you to let us know so that we can pray for you, so that we can remember you, so that we can put you on a prayer list if you would like us to do that, so that other people will be praying for you. We'll be happy to come to the hospital and pray with you before surgery or pray with you after surgery or pray with you while you're in the waiting room waiting for your spouse or your family member who's having surgery. We'll do any of those things because we believe that prayer is powerful. And James makes it clear here. Now, there's one more thing I want to mention about these few verses, 13 through 15. That last verse, the Lord will raise up this sick person, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. I think it's important to note that in that day, it was extremely common to believe that if someone was sick, if someone was suffering, if someone had some sort of disability, they must have sinned. Why else would God be doing this to them? Why else would this thing have been brought upon them? Either they sinned or their parents sinned. Sin is in the picture somehow. Now, is that presented in the New Testament? The answer is yes, but it's not necessarily the case. 
there are passages in the New Testament that seem to link sickness to sin. That there may be some sin that that person needs to repent of. And maybe that will help to alleviate some of their suffering. But it's not necessarily the case. Look at John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. We see an example of this in the life of Jesus. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. You can't blame the disciples for saying this. They're children of their times. They're just saying, Hey, Jesus, what's the deal? What did this guy do, or what did his parents do to bring this suffering upon him? And Jesus says, guess what, guys? That's not the point. Sickness, disease, they're often an unfortunate side effect of the sin that impacts the world around us. But Jesus seems to say something even more important than that. Jesus seems to imply here that this man was born blind, not as an unfortunate consequence of sin in the world, Not as some unfortunate coincidence, because the world is a messed up place. He seems to say that this man was born blind because he was part of a bigger plan than he realized. And as weird as it sounds, as hard as it is for us to wrap our minds around that, God has something in store for this guy. God's going to use this guy to do something incredible. That may or may not sound comforting to you but i think it should and it's easy for me to say that because i'm not dealing with whatever sickness that you might be dealing with i'm not dealing with whatever suffering that you might be dealing with and so it's easy for people like me to sit back from the armchair and say hey don't worry god's going to use you for something great i'm not going to pretend to know what you're going through but i can tell you that you do not need to buy into the lie That if you are suffering, if you're sick, then whether you realize it or not, you're sinning. There's something you need to repent of. And you know, if you would just have enough faith, you probably wouldn't be sick anymore. It's a lie. Don't buy into it. Repent of sin the same way anybody else would, whether they're sick or not. That needs to be the focus. Don't buy in to the lie. Picking up in verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another... And pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. James says that we need to confess our sins. Now, depending on what church tradition you may or may not have grown up in, that word confess has some baggage with it. Because you may have grown up in a tradition that says, you know, I can only confess to this one special person. And if I want to get right with God, I have to have him as my middleman because I can't confess to God correctly. I have to give my sins to this guy and then he goes to God for me and he takes care of it. That simply isn't presented in scripture. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9, just a page or two over from where we are in James. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the idea that, you know, I can only confess to a priest. 
That's the one person I can confess to. I can't confess to God directly, and I definitely don't need to confess my sins to another human being. Well, guess what? If you're a follower of Christ, you are a part of God's royal priesthood as a part of his family. So any fellow believer, technically, in the New Testament language, is a priest. Confess your sins to one another. But Paul picks up on this. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Paul says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. The only middleman between us and God is Jesus Christ. And he's done what he needed to do. His body was broken. His blood was shed so that we can be reconciled to the Father. So that we can be back into relationship with the God who created us. The God whose image that we bear. We don't need a middleman. We don't need to be scared to confess our sins to God. And we don't need to be scared to confess our sins to one another. We can approach God with confidence. Knowing that what Jesus did for us is more than effective. It's more than sufficient. And we can trust in grace. And we can trust in mercy. And this confession, we talk about prayer. Prayer is such a big part of relationship with God. You look at your relationship with your family or your friends. If you go six months or a year or two years or five years or ten years without talking to your family, without talking to your friend, then guess what? The relationship probably isn't going to be what it needs to be. It's not going to be a very healthy relationship without communication. Prayer is an absolutely essential part of our relationship with God. And in the same way, this confession, that goes back to our communication together as a family. The only way that we can truly encourage one another, the only way that we can truly hold one another accountable as a community of believers, is by confessing our sins to one another. Knowing that we can do it without feeling judged, without feeling ostracized, knowing that we can come to one another, and yes, there may be hard truths said, but they'll be said in love. They won't be said in arrogance. They won't be said in rudeness. They'll be said for the mutual building up of one another, helping all of us become more like Christ. That's the point of confession. It has baggage with it, but confess to God. Confess to the people around you. It'll be worth it. Look at verses 17 and 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. In the verse before, James said that the prayer of a righteous person has great power. And then he cites the example of Elijah. Elijah was one of the heroes of the Old Testament. He was right up there in the ranks with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses. He was truly one of the heroes, one of the people that everyone wanted to be like, the guy that everyone looked up to. And one of the biggest reasons why he had this hero's status was because of his relationship with God. And a lot of that came back to prayer. In 1 Kings, verses chapter 17 and 18, we see these several big, big stories, these incredible things that Elijah did. 
But look at what James says. Elijah is really not that much different than any of us. Elijah doesn't have any special qualifications that we don't have. He has a nature like ours. He is flawed like us. He is imperfect like us. He has fallen like us. But guess what? God uses him to do some incredible, amazing things. It's not because he somehow earned that right. It's not because he was in better standing than we were. It was by God's grace. It was by God's grace that he could take a fallen person and use him for something incredible. And he can do the same with you and with me. We're not a lot different than Elijah. Just like Elijah, we trust in grace. We're dependent upon God. We trust in his mercy. We throw ourselves at his feet. And if we're willing to do that, who knows what God can do? Who knows what the spirit living inside of us can do? Who knows what someone who's praying regularly is capable of? Because prayer is one of the most revolutionary acts that you could possibly think of. It's not giving up. It's not conceding. It's not just something you do when things are out of control to somehow make yourself feel better. It's an incredibly revolutionary thing that we're called to do regularly. Closing out in verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, this passage has been highly debated theologically. What's the deal here? If this person is straying from the faith, does that mean that somehow if I bring them back, then somehow my sins are forgiven? Well, guess what? That's not really the whole idea. The whole idea in this passage about prayer is that we're called to be there for one another. It goes back to prayer. It goes back to confession. When we see one another straying, some of you in older churches may have used the term backsliding as one of the common terms. When we see a brother who's struggling, a brother who's hurting, a brother or sister who's making bad decisions— a brother or sister who seems to be neglecting their relationship with God, what are we called to do? Well, we're called to pray for them. We're called to love them. We're called to serve them. We're called to be doing the same things that James just said. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. Do these things. You know, it's only when we realize just how much of a privilege it is to pray and it's only when we realize just how much we need God that prayer will become a regular part of our lives. And that realization, ask God to change your heart. Ask God to change your mind. Go back to James 4 when James says, cleanse yourselves, purify your hearts, wash your hands, you sinners. He doesn't say that to make us feel terrible about ourselves. He says that to make us realize just how much in need of God we really are. And only when we realize that, only when we realize the weight of this privilege that prayer is, so weighty, in fact, that Jesus laid down his life so that we could be back in relationship with God. Prayer is a regular part of that. And if we look at prayer and we neglect it, we take it for granted, we say we're too busy for it, we wait until the last possible moment. 
to even do it? What's that say? What does that say about how we view Christ's death? Christ died for us so that we could be in relationship with God again. Let's not take that for granted. Let's make the most of this opportunity we have. Let's talk to God all the time. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've blessed us with individually. Thank you for all that you've blessed us with as a church. God, I pray that we will let prayer permeate every aspect of our lives, that we will just let our lives be soaked in prayer. Whether that means that we wake up five minutes earlier, maybe we turn off the music in the car, Maybe we take 30 seconds before dinner to pray as a family. God, I pray that we'll do those things. I pray that you will be continually shaping us. I pray that we will have a constant attitude of repentance. I pray that we will just realize how needy and dependent we really are. I pray that we will find our hope only in you. Thank you for your son. Thank you for his death. Thank you for his resurrection. Thank you that we can have your word. We can read your word together. We can take communion together. That we can confess our sins to one another. That we can speak to you like you're sitting right next to us. Thank you for your grace that makes all of these things possible. Have mercy on us, God. I pray that we will serve you joyfully, courageously, boldly, and humbly. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you have questions about becoming a follower of Christ, if you look at yourself in the mirror and realize that, you know, I've been trying way too long to get by on my own. Maybe you are a believer and you say, you know what, I've been trying for way too long to do all these things that James challenges me to do. On my own, and I'll never succeed in that way. Talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the side of the room. If you have questions about our church, if you have any kind of prayer request that we just talked about, sickness, suffering, anything at all, talk to one of them as well. Well, shall we stand for one last song? Again, if you have a prayer need, something in your life that's going on, please don't wait. Find your way to one of our elders. Lord, we lift you up in this place.